Good morning. All right. So the past two weeks, we have explored the resurrection encounters of many of Jesus' disciples, including the Apostle Peter last week in his encounter with Jesus on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, where he was restored uh, after Peter denied Jesus three times. So we're now transitioning in Peter into Peter's first epistle, uh, and we're going to live in this rich uh, letter throughout the, the remainder of the spring and into a good part of the summer. So I've been personally studying and living into this opening part of the text for a while, and I'm excited to set up this series for us this morning. So let's talk about Simon Peter, okay? Simon was a fisherman from the northern shore of Sea of Galilee. Luke 5 tells us that uh, he meets Jesus one day when Jesus uses his boat to preach from. Then Jesus performs a miracle of of an enormous catch of fish. And this ultimately causes Simon to fall at Jesus' knees and say, Get away from me, I'm a sinful man. To which Jesus replies, Do not be afraid, from now on you will fish for people. And therefore Simon's call as a disciple begins. That's how it starts. So of all the disciples, we, we probably know the most about Simon due to his frequent appearances in all four Gospels. And addition, additionally, his stories tend to be the memorable ones as a, he's often, perhaps unfairly, portrayed as impulsive or impetuous. Pastor Stacy has often called Simon the patron saint of those who put their foot in their mouth. Okay, so there's a notable number of stories about Simon in the Gospels. In Matthew 14, Simon walks on water, and then he takes his eyes off Jesus, and he begins to sink. Last week, Dr. Leanne Ketchum shared with us that Simon was really the first disciple to perceive Jesus as the Messiah in Matthew 16, in, in which Jesus responds by changing his name to Cephas in Aramaic, or Petros in Greek, which we translate as Peter which means rock. Jesus says to Peter, on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overcome it. But as we saw last week in the very next part of that passage, Jesus makes a prediction of his own death and Peter pulls him aside to rebuke him saying that'll never be. To which Jesus says, get behind me Satan. You don't have anything in mind the things of God, but in mind the things of man. And the gospels seem to document this pattern of Peter you know, making these brilliantly bold statements one minute and then seemingly being in the doghouse the next minute. So in the passage we looked at last week where Jesus was restored, or I'm sorry, where Peter was restored by Jesus on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, Jesus instructs Peter to take care of his sheep three times. But he also gives Peter a bit of information about his own, about Peter's death and how he will glorify God in that. And two times in that restoration, Um, Jesus tells Peter that he must follow Jesus. So, after Jesus ascends and the Holy Spirit descends at Pentecost, it's that day Peter preaches and he stands up and he boldly preaches and 3,000 are added to the number of the church that day. Peter is now indeed the rock upon which Jesus is building his church. We We clearly see Peter in charge at the beginning of the book of Acts. He's leading He's healing. He's preaching the gospel with great success. You know, he speaks before the Sanhedrin without fear. And he's miraculously delivered from prison with the help of an angel. 
Then God uses Peter for one of the most significant pivots, I think, in, in the missional direction of the church in, in Acts 10. And Peter's given this vision, and then he's sent to the home of some Gentiles in Caesarea to preach the gospel. And this is, this is one of my favorite passages because, and I preached on this a couple years ago, Peter can't even finish the sermon that day in that house when, before the Spirit falls on these Gentiles and uh, they begin to speak in tongues. The Gentiles are baptized that day by Peter, and then Peter reports all this back to the apostles who marvel at this, and they say, they admit that, wow, even to the Gentiles, God has granted the repentance that leads to life. So, so the gospel spreads to Jews and Gentiles alike, especially in the areas north of Israel, including what is modern-day Turkey. Now, Peter, along with the apostle Paul, are ultimately called back to Jerusalem, to this great council that takes place in Acts 15. And Peter, there, he speaks about the work God has done through him to the Gentiles. And it's at this important council at Jerusalem that the, that the church, the Jerusalem church, determines that the Gentiles who come to faith in Christ should not be burdened with keeping the Jewish law and all those restrictions. And with that, we don't hear any more from Peter, again, in the book of Acts, until really, this letter. Now, tradition holds that Peter ended up in Rome, which we'll see later in this letter he calls Babylon. Tradition holds that Peter uh, was ultimately martyred in Rome, and that it was there that he was crucified upside down, because he did not consider himself worthy to be crucified in the same manner as Jesus. But before that happens, we have this letter written by Peter, apparently composed by a man named Silvanus. The letter is what we call a circular letter. It was written to several churches in Asia Minor, uh, which are in the northern part of Turkey. We'll see that in a minute. So as, as we set the table for this rich book this morning, we're going to find some good news in the opening greeting and the song of praise to this letter. And the good news is that Peter names several gifts that we who are in Christ have been given Although we're going to find that one of these gifts is indeed a very strange gift this morning. All right? So let's dive in. Peter identifies himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ in verse 1. Now, the author, uh, Luke, likes to use the term apostle to, as the official designation of the 12 who followed Jesus in his earthly ministry, who witnessed his resurrection, and who were chosen by Jesus to establish the church. Apostle comes from the Greek word that means to sin. These apostles were given authority to speak the word Jesus commissioned them to bring. Now, the recipients of the letter are described as God's elect exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. All right? So, it's map time. I love maps. Uh, so, here's a map of Asia Minor. So, in the last two years, we've actually looked at a, a two letters to the Colossians in the Ephesians, which are both cities in the southern part of what is today Turkey. Colossae and, uh, is, is on the Lycos River Valley, kind of in this area. And then Ephesus was a port city uh, near the Mediterranean Sea. The cities Peter is addressing here, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, they're, they're up in the northern part. You can see some of those cities listed are on the map up here. They're in the northern part of what is today Turkey. Dr. Dennis Edwards is the dean of North Park Theological Seminary. And he's done a, 
In addition to that, he's done a lot of work. He's written commentaries, and he's done a lot of work on 1 Peter. And he states that the order of these cities was likely the order of a courier or a mail route. And this letter was likely circulated along this route. Edwards states that the Greek historian Eusebius writes that Peter appeared to have preached in these cities that were scattered abroad before ultimately coming to Rome. All right, so Peter states that these are God's elect who have been chosen. Now, regarding this word elect, scholar Scott McKnight states, to be elect means to receive God's grace. This, this benefit is a result of God's initiative, not ours. In other words, God has called us to his, to his love and his grace. He has prompted our faith through the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, and he claims our allegiance. McKnight adds, to be one of God's elect is a source of joy and comfort, for we know that God's will cannot be thwarted, and it's also of exhortation and demand, because we know that God is working in us to enable us to do his will. But notice that Peter uses two words to describe these elect states. They are exiles, and they are scattered. Now, the Greek word that's translated, that's used here for exiles, is actually pretty rare uh, in its usage in the New Testament. And both of these words, they really connote this Old Testament image of God's people in exile. And, and they're used metaphorically here. Now, I want to introduce a term to you this morning that you're more than likely going to continue to hear throughout this series. And that is the term diaspora. Diaspora. Diaspora is a movement or a migration or scattering of people separate from their original homeland. And this is often referenced as the removal of the Jewish people from, from Judea in the Old Testament when they're taken to Babylon. And Peter's using this image here to reference the current reality for the readers who are both Jews but also Gentiles. So Peter's applying an Old Testament image to Gentiles in this church as if, it's a, it's a, as if the Jewish exile is the Gentiles' history as well. Now, regarding this term diaspora, Dr. Shively Smith makes an important distinction. That it's not always about a dispersed people leaving a place to where they hope to return, as in the Old Testament story of exile of Israel. It's all, so it isn't always this bidirectional aspiration. Instead, diaspora in Peter's letter depicts the readers actively moving toward the establishment of their own social community in their own land. So this isn't unlike the experience of African Americans uprooted from their land and ultimately forced to live faithfully in a new land. And we're going to see that this letter, as we work through it, has a connection with those who know what it's like to live in this state of alienation. So in verse 3, Peter opens his letter with really what is a, just a classic Jewish uh, song of praise. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then Peter lists a number of gifts given to these diaspora readers. In his great mercy, he has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, the first gift is a new birth into a living hope. Now, there's an important word here in, in the Greek that's translated as the word into. And that word often connotes a, a strong sense of purpose. So, so the idea... This idea of new, of new birth, it's not original to Peter. I mean, we know from John 3 
Jesus, that night when Nicodemus approached him, Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born again or born from above. And the idea here is that new birth leads to hope. To quote Andy Dufresne from the Shawshank Redemption, hope is a good thing. Regarding hope, Dr. Edwards says that hope is not this abstract sense of optimism, but it's a confident expectation of a good outcome based on the work of God. Let me say that again. It's not an abstract sense of optimism, but it's a confident expectation of a good outcome based on the work of God. Why? Because Christ has been raised from the dead, and he's alive. Christian hope can be described as a living hope. So, we continue in our text, and we read in verse 4, we see this same prepositional phrase again used, and it's translated again as into, which again indicates purpose, and we need to tie that, that back to the gift of new birth. So not only is it a new birth into a living hope, but he's also given us a new birth into an inheritance. An inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. The inheritance comes from the new birth, and it's the second part of the gift. So we, we live in a world where some people are born into a family where they know that someday they're going to receive an inheritance or the situation. And, we, and other people are born into a situation where there's not a hope that they're going to receive an earthly inheritance from their earthly parents or family or, or, or others. Now, Hollywood likes to dramatize the reading of wills and the announcement of an inheritance. You know, the, the 2019 movie Knives Out is about the fictional wealthy Thromby family and the inheritance surrounding the death of the patriarch Harlan Thromby. Now, this is about as dramatic and extreme, not to mention dysfunctional, a portrayal as it gets. But the, but the reality is, is, is an inheritance is rarely ever a surprise like we see in the movies. But the beauty of the second gift of the inheritance Peter mentions is unlike an earthly treasure that are perishable, this inheritance will never perish, spoil, or fade. Commentator William MacDonald states this inheritance is death-proof, it's sin-proof, and it's time-proof. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you. So, unlike Knives Out, no one's going to change it or alter it at the last minute. Nobody's going to sweep in and steal it or edge you out of your inheritance. But notice that not only is the inheritance being preserved, so are you. Verse 5 states that you are being kept for it. Peter states, we are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Okay, so there is a third prepositional phrase in this verse, but it really isn't apparent to us in the NIV translation. It's that same Greek word that was translated as into back in verses 3 and 4. So I agree with uh, Dr. Edwards that actually the New Revised Standard Version, the NRSV, better translates verse 5 as who are being protected by the power of God through faith for a, for a, which is that same Greek word, for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. I think this translation better captures that same prepositional phrase and it ties salvation back to new birth. So this is a future or eschatological hope of salvation. This is the coming of Christ's kingdom yet to be revealed. So we have salvation for many things right here and now. 
by grace through faith. Yet the fulfillment of the salvation is yet to come. So really to summarize this, we're given this great three-part gift of a new birth into a living hope, into an inheritance that's kept to us for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And then Peter accurately summarizes this whole thing in verse 6. He says, in all this you greatly rejoice, as he should. I mean, who wouldn't rejoice in this wonderful three-part gift of a new birth into a living hope and inheritance and a future salvation? But then Peter introduces the next gift, and it's a strange gift. And it may not seem like a gift at all, but it's a gift nonetheless. Verse 6 continues, though for a little while, you may have had to suffer grief and all kinds of trials. And it's as if you want to say, oh, Peter, you're doing so well. But not all the gifts we receive are welcome gifts. I'm sure that's been true for you in your life. You received a gift you may not have wanted. So in her book, The Hiding Place, Dutch Holocaust survivor Corey Tinboon writes of a very strange gift that was unwanted. So Corey and her sister Betsy had been imprisoned in a Nazi concentration camp for hiding Jews in their Holland home. And conditions in the camp were horrible. And suffering was everywhere. And Corey writes, yet in the midst of all the suffering, the women prisoners around Corey and Betsy found comfort in the little Bible studies that were held in the barracks with a Bible that was smuggled into the camp. Now ultimately, when Corey and her sister were moved to another barracks, Corey was horrified by the fact that their straw bed platforms were swarmed with fleas, with fleas. One night, Corey's sister, Betsy, was instructing Corey to be thankful in all circumstances, and she even gave thanks for the fleas. Corey couldn't be thankful for the fleas. But Betsy replied, the word says give thanks in all circumstances. It doesn't say only say give thanks in pleasant circumstances. Fleas are part of the place where God has put us. And Corey writes, it turns out that Betsy wasn't wrong. The fleas were a nuisance, but they were a blessing after all. See, the women were able to have their Bible studies in the barracks with a great deal of freedom, and they were never bothered by the male supervisors coming in and harassing them. And they finally discovered it was the fleas that kept these men away. Through the fleas, God protected the women from abuse and harassment. And dozens of women were free to hear the comforting, hope-giving word of God. Through these fleas, God protected these women from worse things. And he made sure that their deepest, their most truest needs were met. Now, I don't think I could come up with an illustration of a stranger gift than fleas. And in the coming weeks, we're going to see that much of Peter's letter is about suffering. And this idea of a strange gift comes from Dr. Tim Mackey in the Bible Project. Mackey states that the gift of living hope makes suffering and persecution a strange gift. There's a connection here. Mackey says the strange gift burns away the false hope like, like, uh, and distraction like a fire, and it reminds us of our true home. All right, so let's take a look at some of the characteristics of this strange gift that the readers in Asia Minor would have experienced. And, and I think we're going to see a connection. This is a lot of what we experience today. Now, first off, they're going to suffer grief. 
And I contend that no one gets out of this life without suffering some kind of grief. I mean, if you love someone, eventually you're going to grieve some kind of loss. The grief will come. And all kinds of trials, Peter states. And Peter's going to expand on these trials as we work through the letter in the coming weeks. But Dr. Edwards gives some context here that I think is really important for us to understand as we embark upon this letter. Now, at this point, we need to understand that widespread Roman-sanctioned persecution is really not prevalent yet for these readers. History documents that this type of, this level and this type of persecution will come later under the Roman emperor Nero and others that followed him. Edwards states that most scholars would agree that Peter's readers are not facing official empire-wide persecution, but rather local, unorganized, sporadic oppression. So they are indeed strangers in a strange land. And for many of them, the strange land they find themselves in isn't a land that they were carried off to. It's the land they've always known, but now they are strangers and aliens. They are the diaspora. So I recently read two fictional books that have given me some insight into what life was like for Christian converts living in, in a first century Roman, or sorry, Greco-Roman culture. The books A Week in the Life of Ephesus and The Lost Letters of Pergamon, both, they both take place in those respective cities in Asia Minor. And they give a real good glimpse of the grief and types of trials that new converts would have faced in, as they navigated the social and the civic political uh, structure in those cities and, and the difficulties of, of conducting commerce and providing for your family and then navigating really the polytheistic uh, religious environment. Now, most of this came in, in the form of alienation or shame or slander or social tension or suspicion. See, to most in that culture, anyone who believed in and worshipped one God were strange. And they were even called atheists. So lack of participation in the imperial cult. Now that the imperial cult was worship of the Roman emperor. Um, anybody, who, anybody who did not do that, they, they were called atheists. That was believed to be atheism. Now, you're free. You're free to worship as many gods as you want. You could worship the Hebrew God. You could worship the Christian God. You could worship Artemis of the Ephesians, Zeus, Athena, or Dionysius of Pergamon, in addition to the imperial cult. But Jews and Christians who worship one God, well, they're just weird. And this is a form of this, the type of suffering that was present at the time of this letter. Now, will it get worse? Well, it did get worse. It got much worse. History tells us that many of the apostles and the early Christians were ultimately martyred. But for now, the grief and the trials are really not that different from what we experience in our culture when people think we are narrow-minded or they think we're strange for what we believe. Scott McKnight calls this their social location. And he states what they're experiencing here is social exclusion. So these diaspora, have, they have the gift of a living hope, an inheritance, and a future salvation, but currently they're in a very socially strange position. McKnight adds that it's very rare for Christians to live obediently, even, even in the Western world, without experiencing some kind of social exclusion at some point in their lives, even if it has, doesn't go as far as outright persecution. So Peter puts a time parameter on these gifts. He says, for a little while. This isn't 
the believers forever experiencing experience following Jesus. This is indeed for a little while. Our, our lives and our exposure to grief and trials are, expre- are extremely short, eternally speaking. The Apostle Paul affirms the same thing in 2 Corinthians 4 when he says, We do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So Paul calls them here light and momentary troubles. And both Peter and Paul affirm two things. One, they're temporary. And two, they are valuable. Paul says they are preparing us for an eternal glory. And Peter says they exist so that the proven genuineness of your faith, which is of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Your faith is worth more than gold. Both your faith and gold are refined by fire to make them pure, to make them genuine. This is the purpose of grief. This is the purpose of these trials. This momentary season is a season of purification. All this is for good. All this is so that it might result in praise, honor, and glory when Jesus Christ is revealed. And then Peter continues in verse 8, Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and you're filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So you have to wonder when you read that if if Peter is recalling Jesus' words to Thomas. So remember the message Pastor Stacy brought us on Easter where Jesus appeared to the disciples a second time which included Thomas who had doubted. And this time Thomas is present. And Jesus says to Thomas in John 20, 29, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. See, none of the people in these churches saw the resurrected Jesus. And we have not visibly seen the resurrected Jesus. Yet they and we are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. Because we are receiving what I consider the final gift in verse 9. The salvation of of our souls. So, as I said, I'm the table setter here for what is to come. But even so, I think there's much for us uh, to think about, even in these opening introductory verses. And there's a few questions I, for us to ponder, and I put these in the Bible app for your consideration. So, the first question, in verse 3, the, the first gift Peter mentions is a new birth into a living hope. Hope is defined as a vision of a better tomorrow, a vision of a better tomorrow. Where do you give your time and your thought energy to your hope for a better tomorrow? We all hope. I hope we hope. What is the better tomorrow that is important to you? We often hear sermons where Christian speakers or pastors condemn the news media for being negative. I'm not going to argue with that, but I think there's equally as much Our media sources feed us that influence where we place our hope. So, in other words, um, when we look at how media sources are are influencing, I think they really influence a hopeful vision tomorrow that's too small and too short. So look at how much uh, media is dedicated to the ideas of home improvement or a healthy lifestyle, or to point a finger at myself, at sports. These aren't bad things. 
that a living hope is more than just a future with a better home or better landscaping or a better body or your team finally getting over the hump. A living hope is not a hope in these temporary things to satisfy us, but it's alive. It's alive because of the resurrection. So, so regarding your hope for the future, what really consumes your thoughts and your energy? Is it the living hope as Peter describes it? Or these things that are, that are too small and too short? Second question is, how will you embrace this letter as readers who are still in exile, scattered, the diaspora, you know, who haven't necessarily been ripped out or displaced from your land, but even still you find yourself as strangers and aliens in the land you live? So regarding Scott McKnight's comment I, I shared earlier about the idea of social exclusion, McKnight adds, in the Western world, I can think of no group for whom social exclusion might apply any better than God-fearing Christians on university campuses. Many here, that's exactly where you live. And I think our journey through this letter has something to say to us about this. The final question, how might you en embrace the idea of, of suffering both grief and trials as a strange gift from God? Do you see it as a gift? Are you thankful for the fleece? How might you remind yourself of the proper time perspective, the, the perspective of a little while? Again, back to my comments about where we place our hope. Peter is saying here that this strange gift of suffering has a way of focusing our future hope where it should be focused and not on these temporary lesser things. Would you pray with me? God, I thank you for this passage. I thank you for this word and the many gifts that are listed here. For a new birth into a living hope. For an inheritance that's being kept for us. For a salvation that's both clear here and now and present and yet to come. And God, for the strange gift of these grief, of this grief and these trials. God, help us to embrace that gift as a gift that refines our faith in you. Amen.